Everything under your roof is important, so make sure your roof is up to the job. For over 20 years, SureTop Roofing has been covering triangle homes and businesses. SureTop Roofing is certified with all of the major shingle manufacturers, providing a 50-year non-prorated warranty. SureTop Roofing has estimators, project managers, and design consultants on staff, guaranteeing superior service. Visit SureTopRoofing.com. SureTop Roofing has you covered. Sure Top Roofing presents the Carolina Contractor with your host, Donnie Blanchard. Brought to you by GAF Roofing, shingles and materials. We protect what matters most. And Mid-Atlantic Roofing Supply and Garner, a roofing supplier with a different approach. And being greeted by cooler weather now that fall is officially here and hopefully those no CM gnats will be dead. Go away. Welcome to the Carolina Contractor Show. I'm Eric Smith with your host, Donnie Blanchard from Sure Top Roofing. Welcome, Donnie. Hey there. That was sweet. You use that line with the ladies, too, don't you? You usually ask how I'm doing, and you floored me when you didn't, so. Yeah, Donnie's uh, first date usually is, uh, hey there, how you doing? You look pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Some people call it a Kaiser blade, some people call it a sling blade. All right, the carolinacontractor.com is the website to go to. It's not a dating site. It is about how you can fix things in your house, things about your house from the roof to the floor, inside, outside. Donnie's the man that can help you with this. He also does roofing, hence the name SureTop Roofing. Go to that website, SureTopRoofing.com, if you've got questions about your roof. But today we're going to hit a a couple subjects. But last week we were talking about asbestos. Uh, detached garages, which again, you do those too, right? We Don? do. Yes, sir. SureTop Roofing does detached garages. Synthetic underlayment, not as sexy as it sounds, but it's very important for your roof. And also how much insurance coverage you should carry. And coming up in today's show, we're going to be talking about building codes and how they got started. Yeah. Before we jump into that, I just wanted to say thanks again to all the folks who've been interacting with us. And we had someone last week give us an interesting question. They said, why do you do this and how much time does it take? And the answer is this has turned into a part-time job. And all through the week when I see something that would be good material for the radio, I'll just stop what I'm doing and take my notes. But the answer I gave these folks is there's weeks when I don't have time to come to the studio. There's weeks when I just have to carve that time out, whether it be working late or starting early. And the one thing that really drives me when it comes to the show is I'm documenting just about every scenario in the construction world that I can think of and how I would react to that scenario. And that's something that I feel really strongly about passing on to my son. So if something should ever happen to me, my son would have this full database of things or or scenarios and, and how dad would react to that. And, you know, hopefully one day have grandkids as well and, and maybe it'll get passed on to them. So on weeks when I just can't make it happen, that's the reason that I come in and do it anyway. So your grandkids can go, look, it's Grandpa Donnie telling me how to fix this broken toilet. Right. I don't like being called Grandpa now. Sometimes my daughters will hand me a baby doll and they'll say, hey, uh, hey, Grandpa, can, 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 can you hold uh, the baby? And I said, no, I don't like the way that sounds now. But eventually, I hope that's something that happens. We'll embrace it. Both of us are not there yet and in no rush to be grandfathers. No, sir. Today's subject we're going to be talking about on the Carolina Contractor Show is building code. We hear that phrase thrown around a lot when a any sort of construction is going on, but it's pretty detailed. And I didn't realize this till again, all the research Donnie did the history of building codes and how they got started. Right. It's pretty fascinating stuff. And I'm a history buff already. So, and there's th- some death involved. <laughs> there's definitely death involved. Um, before building code was established, you know, the building industry was kind of like the wild west and, you know, you had to rely on someone who had built a house before, you know, your friends, uncles, brother-in-law who built a house for a relative, 
10 years ago, and you were just basically at their mercy for how they thought things should be done. But mm-hmm. I'll read you this definition. Um, it says the purpose of the standard building code is to serve as a comprehensive regulatory document to guide decisions aimed at protecting the public's life, health, and welfare in the built environment. This protection is provided through the adoption and enforcement by state and local governments of the performance-based provisions contained herein. Now, that sounds like a lot of legal jargon, but... Mm-hmm. Basically, the building code is put out there to protect you, and a lot of the things that are in the building code are in there because of a disaster or a situation where someone was hurt or it just could have been handled differently. This is really neat. The first known written building code was enacted by King Hammurabi, and he was a Babylonian king back in 1700s B.C. So that far back, they established somewhat of a building code, and it was literally written in stone, uh, but it had some really harsh penalties and something that would be unheard of today, but it stated, if a builder has built a house for a man and his work is not strong, and if that house he has built falls and kills the householder, that builder shall be slain. Yikes! I know. Now, I know a a few builders who should probably be put to death, but not because they (laughs) built a bad house, it's because they're crooked. Or did popcorn ceilings. (laughs) Right, right. It also had a note in there that if the house falls on the homeowner's son, then they would kill the son of the home builder. So it's wow. Yeah, it was really uh, harsh, but fair. It was harsh. (laughs) The thing you've probably heard before is eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. And that's where that came from. But it also had some other things that were really neat, like you were innocent until proven guilty. And uh, those are things that have translated all the way to the laws we have today. There's a big section of Deuteronomy in the Bible that echoes a lot of these things that the Hammurabi Code came up with before Deuteronomy was written. And like I said, that translates all the way to what we have today. There's actually a picture carved in stone of King Hammurabi on a government building in D.C. So that's how far his code is translated to you know, the 21st century. There's also century. a carving of him with a PS4 controller. They're not sure why. Yeah, I have no idea. Hammurabi, way ahead of his time. <laughs> Total prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not true, by the way. <laughs> Well, after the big fires in London in 1600s and in Chicago, uh, the Chicago fire in 1871. So Leary's cow. Right. Building codes started addressing the risk of, uh, of one building posed to another. So in a bigger city like that, these buildings were built adjacent to one another, meaning they usually shared a common wall, which you call a parapet wall. And um, when cities began to, you know, be more dense in the developments and just hazards associated with the close proximity of all these houses and buildings. It led to all these regulations like the construction of that common wall that we just mentioned and uh, outlawing dangerous practices like wooden chimneys, which <laughs> sounds like a terrible idea. But I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, there was actually a building code of uh, when Boston first became a city, and that was one of the big things. I think thatch roofs and, and wooden chimneys were the first things they outlawed. But And stop bathing in gasoline. <laughs> Um, so those codes applied to new construction, but problems with existing buildings led to codes for light and ventilation, fire escapes, uh, water supplies, toilets, sanitary drains, stairs, railings, everything you see in the code book now. So thank you, Hammurabi. <laughs> in uh, around the turn of the century, 1905, to be exact, a U.S. insurance group, uh, the National Board of Fire Underwriters, they created this national building code to minimize risk to property and building occupants. Well, the existence of this code led to the formation of three organizations. In 1940, each one of these organizations established its own code. Uh, These three organizations and their codes were consolidated into the International Code Council, and that's something we still have today. The International Code Council was published when they brought all three of these organizations together in the year 2000. Hold on a second. So we're saying basically not till 20 years ago did we kind of get it all into one centralized 
book. I believe North Carolina was 1983, but that was just a state building code. So, yeah, the international wow. building code didn't come together until just before our children were born. That's so crazy. It really is. The three organizations that consolidated into the international was International Residential Code, International Energy Conservation Code, which is getting a little bit out of hand now, but uh, <laughs> that's another story as well as the mechanical plumbing, fire, and other codes. So the IBC, IRC, IECC will be having a quiz at the end of the show. So right. remember those phrases. And just because all these came together and formed this international building code as a reference, it doesn't mean that everybody had to abide by these. So each state has its own code, and a lot of these states have the option of what's enforced. And so if you go to a state where their economy is a little bit different than, say, North Carolina, you know, things may be a little more lax when they don't have the same number of houses being built every year as, say, a bigger city. And in some cases, they have no code enforcement at all. I know that there's a county, I won't call it out by name, but when I build in that county, you know, I have a good relationship with the inspector, and they have one inspector who does all the inspections for everything. So you get somewhere larger like Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Mm -hmm. and, of course, they've got a mechanical expert. They've got a plumbing expert, and all these guys are usually former tradespeople in that area. But, um, you know, you get to these smaller municipalities, and they just have one person that wears all the hats. And that's a good thing in some cases, and they're easier to work with. Or if you have to keep moving and say, hey, I'm going to take a picture of this, but I've got to cover this up and encapsulate it inside a wall, usually that's okay. Mm-hmm. When you get into these uh, larger municipalities or inspections departments, a lot of people are in uh, what we call CYA mode. So they're covering mm-hmm. their rear end, and they won't let you do anything unless it's documented and uh, approved and gone through the proper channels. And a lot of times that's a good thing, but a lot of times it just really slows the process down. And I could go on and on about the history, but that's just a quick summary of how things started and where they are now. All right. This is the Carolina Contractor Show with Donnie Blanchard from SureTop Roofing. So why is it important to be familiar with certain building codes as maybe a homeowner or just in general? Right. Well, if you think about it, uh, codes literally affect just about everyone, whether it's directly or indirectly. Um, you're building a house, living in a house, buying a house. I mean, that's just something to take into consideration as your responsibility as a homeowner or home home buyer. And it's like the fight club. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. First rule of fight club. You do not talk about Fight Club. Oh, yeah, right. I remember now. Second rule of Fight Club, you do not talk about Fight Club. I remember now. Um, you failed your pop culture <laughs> test. But I did. Continue, please. Um, built to code is something that gets thrown around pretty loosely, and that's not always a good thing. When you see some of these homes built in cookie-cutter fashion, you know, the average homeowner goes in and they look at the granite countertops and they look at how big the closets are, but they don't take into consideration the builder-grade windows that are inferior to, you know, a window that's maybe $50 more and, you know, seal failure, things like the window not opening and shutting and just simple things like the lock not working correctly are things that you have to take into consideration. I mean, there's builder-grade flooring, there's builder-grade carpet. And I know I've mentioned this on a previous show, but I did my internship for one of these larger construction companies, and they actually had their own in-house lumber yards. So they manufactured what were called finger-jointed studs. So if you had an eight-foot two-by-four, that thing might be in four pieces And you could see all the four pieces put together like a puzzle. And from an engineering standpoint, that stood up to vertical pressure, but you could almost take your hand and punch right through it horizontally, and it it wouldn't withstand any kind of pressure that way. But uh, it's just a lot of things that folks don't know about code minimums. So with a builder could technically say, hey, your house is solid, it meets all the codes, or just by changing the inflection, hey, it's built to code, Mm -hmm. I don't have to do anymore. Right. 
A good example of that, of code minimums, and say the way we do it, is that if you have a 2,000-square-foot house built to code minimum, the rule of thumb is usually your utilities will be a dollar to a dollar twenty-five per square foot. So 2,000-square-foot house, you've got a $200 electric bill, and that's pretty standard. The way that we build these things to exceed code minimums, and we do extra things like the two-by-six walls, we're adding 50% more insulation, and you know that's not you're not talking thousands and thousands of dollars to accomplish that, but in the big picture, those utilities are never going to stop coming once you move into that house. And if you can cut your utilities into half or even a third of what you would pay at code minimum, it's totally worth it in the long run. If you have the build to code, which you can also look at as just doing the minimum amount of work, do builders take advantage of that? Oh, And how do they do that? They totally take advantage of that. And I guess what we just said about the homeowners not knowing any better and, uh, you know, you're selling to a homeowner who just sees square footage and bells and whistles. And I guess a homeowner, it's your responsibility to know what to look for or the right questions to ask. One thing I'm a big proponent of is that the code enforcement gets more and more strict every single year, but there's nothing out there that requires more education to meet the more strict codes. So basically the building code compliance is required and enforced, but formal training is not. So what that's led to is just unskilled labor in our world. And it's really hard to find good help with young people. They've watered down the wages to the point that it's not as attractive to a young person to dive into construction when he can go make 10 more dollars per hour doing something at a desk job. Well, we've talked about this before, Donnie. There's also this, use the phrase redheaded stepchild, of being in construction or a labor-based career Daughter brings home new boyfriend Mm -hmm. for mom and dad to meet. Right. And, well, where do you work? Oh, well, I work with a foundation company. Right. Oh, that means you do what? You dig ditches. (laughs) Maybe technically, but you probably know somebody who does foundation work that made a career out of it. I do, absolutely. Uh, My brick mason, for instance, um, he's been working successfully for 30 years. And, you know, he put his daughter uh, all the way through college and Living the dream, as far as that goes, put all kind of money away, and this guy probably makes $1,000 a day, and he's a brick mason. It's not glamorous, but he gives his family a wonderful life. Uh, My dad, for instance, he's a footing subcontractor, and when people say ditch digger is the lowest job on the totem pole, not necessarily so. So It's a radio producer. (laughs) Come on now. But my dad, you know, with his business, he probably has to carry, gosh, Three to five hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment and things mm-hmm. that, that take a long time to accumulate. So when you see people pop up in the construction trade, uh, a lot of times what happens is they'll buy a van and a paint sprayer or, you know, a compressor and a trim nailer. And all of a sudden they're a painter. They're a trim carpenter. They just jump into these trades that don't take very much startup costs. But someone like my father, for instance, they don't get anywhere near that because you've got to be set up with trucks, trailers, uh, machinery, attachments, um, a diesel fuel carrier, things that, that you just don't think about when you're talking about someone who digs ditches every day. But my father's also get, gave us a great life growing up. Um, my brother will eventually take over the business. So kind of one of those gifts that keep on giving. Yeah, my brother owns a landscaping business. And sometimes we think of landscaping as, oh, mow, trim, blow. No, he's a commercial landscaper. Uh-huh. Mow, trim, blow, what we call maintenance, doesn't really do that, that much. It's irrigation, it's retaining walls, hotels, condos, and landscapers, first one in, last one out. And the equipment that he would bring into a job and the investment he put in was incredible. Yep. I mean, like you said, front-end loaders and diggers and all that st- sort of thing. And we talked also before about technical schools and technical colleges. That's a great place to go to get certifications for jobs like these to get started. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure apprenticeships like didn't your son work with your dad for a little bit? He did. That was his first summer job uh, this past year. So but he learned a lot. He learned that he probably doesn't want to do that for the rest of his <laughs> life. <laughs> 
you're going to work, but it's a vital, vital part of the economy is to have jobs like this. And I just think in general, looking down at people that have a job that we might think is dirty or muddy or just beneath us, it's literally the foundation of the country is the people who do these foundational jobs of building and construction. And it's a great way to put it. Well, one thing I want to just reiterate, make education as important as enforcement when you're talking about this code. I think that that's going to be something that, um, people catch on to. And I think that's something that's going to become a thing, more continuing education and Mm -hmm. better trained folks in the field for that trade. And as a homeowner, you are the end user. So you're the person who either gets to benefit or, or doesn't get the benefit of something that's well built. So when educating homeowners on the responsibilities, I kind of feel like that's where we come in. And that's a, a thing that the show can help do. We have so many people that tell us, Hey, I learned something and I did it on my house and I went and did it on my daughter's house. And you know, it's just a lot of small things that we try to cover that you wouldn't think about in day to day life. It's, they're really important and uh, they make a difference. And we're going to try to educate you some more in just a couple minutes because we've got questions sent in by listeners just like you. Maybe some of these questions you've wondered about, you can submit your own by going to the website, thecarolinacontractor.com. Also find information about the show, also information about Donnie and his company, SureTop Roofing. That website is SureTopRoofing.com. So hang on. Coming up next, questions on the Carolina Contractor Show. We'll be back with more of the Carolina Contractor presented by SureTop Roofing. Everything under your roof is important, so make sure your roof is up to the job. For over 20 years, SureTop Roofing has been covering triangle homes and businesses. SureTop Roofing is certified with all of the major shingle manufacturers, providing a 50-year non-prorated warranty. SureTop Roofing has estimators, project managers, and design consultants on staff, guaranteeing superior service. Visit SureTopRoofing.com. SureTop Roofing has you covered. Welcome back to the Carolina Contractor. With your host, Donnie Blanchard, presented by Sure Top Roofing. And it's our favorite part of the show, well, at least it's mine. It's time to answer questions sent in from listeners just like you. Go to thecarolinacontractor.com and send in your own question. It can be about your roof, your floor, inside, outside. As a matter of fact, try to throw Donnie a curveball once in a while. He likes those, too. This is kind of a, a, a unique question to start it off. Duct tape, which, yep. first of all, I always thought as a kid was pronounced Duct tape, right? Duct tape. Yeah. But right. it's duct tape. Question number one, Donnie, do you know how duct tape got its name? Well, this is such a good question and it's so far outside of what normally comes in that I had to air this because, uh, to be honest, I didn't know. So I did a little mm-hmm. research and, uh, people say <clears throat> all the time they correct you and say it's duct tape with a T on the end. So like an air supply duct, it's used to mesh a couple of those oh, together. I love that band. But, <laughs> So not so fast on that because it actually is duct tape, like D-U-C-K. Uh, the way it got started, though, was similar to the D-U-C-T so for duct tape. Just an ordinary factory worker named Vesta Stout had two sons in the Navy during World War II. So she was really worried that they had problems with their ammunition box seals and that that would cost these soldiers a lot of precious time in battle. She had this idea to wrap these boxes with a fabric-based tape that they produced in her factory. So she writes a letter to President Roosevelt in 1943 with the idea to seal these boxes with that tape. She tested it in her factory already, so she knew that it would work well. And the President Roosevelt then forwarded that letter to the War Production Board, who put Johnson & Johnson on the job. So they started producing this tape to seal these ammo boxes with. And uh, one feature of the tape that is still around today is that you don't have to cut this stuff with scissors. It's made to be ripped apart with your hand, uh-huh. yet it's still really strong. So that's how that got started. And then you fast forward all the way to 
the 50s and the 60s and people started to use this tape on duct sealing like the air ducts we just mentioned and in the 60s it had evolved into something that was not temperature sensitive so it could handle hot and cold without turning loose of of what it was supposed to be stuck to in 1979 they came out with this marketing plan where they sent greeting cards out i want to say four times every year with the duck tape like the duck branding on there and eventually that became a household name and it stuck around Stuck around. Uh, it stuck around. Awesome. I see what to, you did there. To even be, it stuck around to be available today in all these different colors. And, you know, I guess it's fashionable with prints and that sort of thing. But that's how it got started. And one thing that I thought was really fascinating is duct tape was sold to Sure Tape Technologies, not Sure Top, Sure Tape mm-hmm. uh, Technologies. And that is actually based out of Hickory. So that happened in 2009 and they produce it right here in North Carolina. So it actually is duct tape became duct tape yep. they put the little little duck picture or duck logo on there and the rest is history well isn't there some duct tape you buy that has the the little rubber ducky on it it, well, it is yep looks That's like a rubber ducky yeah again you will learn something on the carolina contractor show <laughs> every week guaranteed a lot of history this week yeah and then you would never have macgyver the television show without duct tape <laughs> and pretty much almost everybody at one time or another has used duct tape on their car i currently have it on i have a um Battery access, I have a little mini, and the connector for the cover over the battery just wore yep. out, doesn't right. work. So the previous owner put black duct tape on it, and it's still on there. looks brand new. I got one better than that. My oh. college roommate had a BMW, and it was such a nice car, and we were in school in Boone. So, of course, you know, a college kid just doesn't take care of a nice vehicle the same way he would as if he paid for it out of pocket. But he actually had something happen on his fender. I don't know if it was cracked or it just came loose mm-hmm. on the front bumper, that is. And we took black duct tape on a black car, and we put that baby back together. And so we always made the joke that he drove a BM duct tape. Eh. Okay, here's the homework for people listening to the show. I want you to go to the thecarolinacontractor.com. There's also a Facebook page. And I want you to post pictures of ways you've used Ooh. duct tape in a unique way. I just remembered I did it on my shoe. And I remember in the movie Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man, Don right. Johnson wore these old yep. cowboy boots, and he would wrap duct tape around them. So thecarolinacontractor.com, take a picture of something you fixed with duct tape and post it up there. And we'll we'll, uh, we'll have to have people uh, send some oh, ideas yeah. of ways you can use duct idea. tape. All right, another question sent to the Carolina Contractor website. First of all, this is probably the longest question we've ever had. I know. I'm interested in your opinion regarding crawl spaces. Our Chapel Hill home is small and our crawl space is dry. The plastic that was put down when the house was built in the early 90s has become displaced and torn and needs to be properly replaced with a better product. Most companies want to do total encapsulation. You hear that a lot now. Their quotes for this are expensive with a capital F. I don't feel that crawl space encapsulation is necessary or desirable for our crawl space. I'd appreciate your advice, suggestions. Thank you. P.S. Eric is awesome. Please get, oh no. P.S. If you have not done so, it would be great if, if you all did a show dedicated to the topic of crawl spaces. Yeah. Well, I, I included Woo. this whole question. I know, take a breath. This lady was wonderful because I wrote her back a short and sweet answer and then we interacted back and forth and it turns out she had more questions than just this. But, mm. um, I wish everybody would do this because she basically dove in online and, uh, she introduced me to something that I've never seen before. But, uh, my short answer to her was that, she should plan on paying about $500 per 1,000 square feet of crawl space, and that's for a six mil plastic to be put down. So I turned her on to the folks that I use for this service, and um, 
I also recommended that if she had the money, a 10 mil plastic. So upgrading, we've talked about that in a previous Mm -hmm. show. And like we mentioned in segment one today, uh, code minimum is six mil plastic. Uh, for a couple hundred dollars more, you can get a 10 mil plastic, which works a lot longer. It's a lot more tear resistant and you won't end up with the same problem you started with in this scenario. But 10 mil is normally around $800 per thousand square feet. So depending on how big your footprint or layout is of your house, you know, you can kind of do some quick math to find out what that is. But one of the things that they quoted to her was a product called Dimple Shield. And um, I think one of these foundation repair companies is actually who quoted this to her. And the catch was with this product is that it goes up under the plastic and it's supposed to extend the life of the plastic. I don't know that it's necessary if you go with the 10 mil because it's so thick, but this product is made out of some sort of recycled material and it's basically made to go on any type of soil. So if you can imagine the interior of a crawl space with nice red dirt versus clay and the amount of moisture all that holds, it's just something that could be a useful thing. But um, So the best thing is have one of these professional companies come in and look at your house if you have a similar situation and, and get some advice from them on what to do. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say about this crawl space plastic is that these guys that do this as a service, they can usually buy the plastic a lot cheaper than you can. So some folks have the bright idea to go to Lowe's, buy a couple rolls of plastic, which is expensive. It's a couple hundred dollars for that. Mm-hmm. And they try to do this themselves and they just end up in a bigger mess. But normally you can have this done as a service cheaper than you can buy the plastic. Very good. All right. We got time for one more question. Uh, this one, Donnie, I've seen people actually doing this and my gut. I have my gut feeling, but I'm going to let you answer. What is your take on pressure washing shingles? And in this case, to remove algae. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, own a roofing company. So uh, I, I'm not. You do it? Does it have a name? <laughs> SureTop Roofing. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not saying this as a sales pitch for SureTop, but we are not fans of this. It can be done. But when you remove that algae that's on one, usually on the north side of the roof only, when you remove that algae, what you're doing is you're displacing the granules. And the granules, we say this all the time, but the granules are actually the sunscreen for what the actual roofing is, which is the fiberglass mat beneath. So. It may look good at first. They may be successful in removing that algae, but you're basically exposing that fiberglass mat to the sun year-round, and it causes the roof to break down prematurely. Um, one thing that we've done, and, and it's a much less evasive method to help out with this, when folks weren't ready to replace their roof, they didn't want to pressure wash it, but they wanted to do something about this horrible algae that was on the front, being the north side of their house, on the front of their house, and just uh, change the look. What they wanted to do is just get rid of this algae that was on the front of their house, What we did is went in and took all their ridge vent off, and basically we put a two-inch copper strip right at the top of the roof under the ridge vent. So if you knew what you were looking for, the rain hits the top of the roof, runs down over the ridge vent, and over these copper strips. And the way newer shingles are treated are with a copper oxide, so that's actually an algae deterrent, but older shingles did not have the same treatment. So we're basically introducing the copper to an older shingle, and it worked pretty well. It didn't get rid of everything, but it did make the house look a lot better, and that's just something that you can add as a, a fail-safe. If you ever ride by a church and you see steeple that's attached to the church, and usually below the steeple you can see the color of the shingles, and they look beautiful, but all around that you see algae on both sides, and it's just like a blacker color. You can't make out uh, the difference in the architectural tabs and that sort of thing. But what's happening is water over the years is running down over that steeple that was probably flashed with copper so many years ago. And that copper is washing down over those shingles below and keeping the algae from forming. So that's the concept there. And for the most part, real quick, Donnie, algae growing on a roof, is it mainly it just doesn't look 
aesthetically pleasing. That's it. It's, that means it, it looks ugly. Right. So if you look at the south side or if you walk on a roof, which we've done hundreds and hundreds of times, the north side looks terrible, but those shingles are actually in way better shape than the southern exposure because that gets the most sun through the, the warmer months. So. Very good. You have algae on your roof. Are you wondering about its condition? Contact Donnie with SureTop Roofing. Website's the same name, SureTopRoofing.com. They come out there, check your roof, among other things. And if you need a new roof, if you need repairs, if you're not sure about getting ready for winter and cold weather, insulation, missing shingles, things like that, SureTop Roofing is the company you want to come out and take a peek at that. Because the best thing Donnie can ever tell you is what? Your roof looks great. Call me next year. And we will see you next week on the Carolina Contractor Show. Thanks for listening to the Carolina Contractor, presented by SureTop Roofing. Brought to you by GAF Roofing, shingles and materials. We protect what matters most. And Mid-Atlantic Roofing Supply and Garner, a roofing supplier with a different approach. Submit your questions online at thecarolinacontractor.com and tune in next Saturday as we continue to help make your home great again. Everything under your roof is important, so make sure your roof is up to the job. For over 20 years, SureTop Roofing has been covering triangle homes and businesses. SureTop Roofing is certified with all of the major shingle manufacturers providing a 50-year non-prorated warranty. SureTop Roofing has estimators, project managers, and design consultants on staff guaranteeing superior service. Visit SureTopRoofing.com. SureTop Roofing has you covered.